Take your seats. Class is in session. Welcome to the Friday Finishing School, where we believe that culture and an appreciation for the classical is foundational in a life lived in pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty. In this class, the only test is one of taste, and the only notes are the ones being played. But make no mistake, this sort of education will lift your spirits and elevate your everyday life in a way that a formal syllabus never could. This season, we're diving into the art, music, and poetry of the Baroque period, which began around the year 1600 and continued up until 1750. It was a time when the upper and middle classes became increasingly more comfortable, and art, though still strongly tied to religious influence, began to branch out to explore different forms and muses. Artistically, Baroque is an elaborate and dynamic style which is recognizable by its richness, drama, tension, and grandeur. It's here in history that we meet cultural giants such as Bach, Vivaldi, Caravaggio, Cervantes, and Shakespeare. It's a period of genius that persists to today. So let's begin. Today's lesson is on the painting Girl with a Pearl Earring by Johannes Vermeer. Delft, a city in South Holland, the Netherlands, was, in the mid-17th century, a great place to be born. Johannes Vermeer, also known as Jan, was baptized there on October 31, 1632, in the New Kirk, which meant New Church, an imposing building with a very tall steeple that dominated the landscape. His father, Renier Jans, was a weaver, known for a very fine material called kaffa. His father was also an art dealer, and both of these trades proved prosperous for the family, and they owned a large home that also had an inn in it, which increased the family's earnings. When Jan was 20, his father died, leaving Jan with the inn and the art dealing business. It is believed that by this time, Jan Vermeer knew that he wanted to be a painter, and we can reasonably assume this because one year later, in 1653, he was registered as a master painter in the Delft Guild of St. Luke, where he became an apprentice master painter. His name wasn't mentioned in the art logs up until this point, so some speculate that he traveled to Italy, France, or Flanders to meet with other artists and see their work. It is also believed that he traveled within the Netherlands, visiting Amsterdam and encountering the great painter Rembrandt. It would have been there that he would have seen the famous chiaroscuro effect, a technique that utilized light and dark in a painting that would enhance the 3D look of objects and people. Rembrandt was famous for this technique, and Vermeer would take this inspiration back to Delft with him. This career in art likely didn't come as a shock to his family. What probably did come as a shock to them was the woman he fell in love with and married. Katharina Bolness lived in a section of town called Pappenhoek, which translates into Papist's Corner. The Protestant Vermeer had his heart set on a Catholic girl, and they were married and he converted to Catholicism. The newlyweds moved into the bride's mother's house. As Vermeer settled into married life and worked on his art, he would have enjoyed the friendship and tutelage of Leonard Bramer, who was arguably the most important artist in Delft at the time. 
Bramer was also a Catholic, and he might have stood beside Vermeer acting as his witness at his Catholic wedding. What is known is that Bramer was an early supporter of Vermeer's work. He would have also known Carl Fabricius. Fabricius was a former student of Rembrandt, and his use of perspective likely inspired Vermeer's work. Fabricius died tragically young in an explosion that rocked the city's core. His death did, though, open the way for Vermeer to gain notice in Delft. I would, as a side note, suggest looking at Fabricius's painting, The Goldfinch, which was ahead of its time in its striking and realistic simplicity. I love that piece. Jan and Katharina enjoyed married life. She gave birth to 15 children, four of whom died in infancy. They continued living in her mother's house, which had a secret Jesuit church next door. While his work was respected and his talent known, and despite the fact that Vermeer was a minor celebrity, this did not translate into wealth at all. And in December 1675, after being worked up into, quote, a frenzy, as described by his wife, Johannes Vermeer died at the age of 42. What caused this frenzy? Well, we can turn to his wife's exact words as she pleaded with their creditors to forgive his debts following his death as she had to raise 11 children single-handedly. She said, during the ruinous war with France, he not only was unable to sell any of his art, but also, to his great detriment, was left sitting with the paintings of other masters that he was dealing in. As a result, and owing to the great burden of his children having no means of their own, he lapsed into such decay and decadence, which he had taken so to heart that he had fallen into a frenzy. In a day and a half, he went from being healthy to being dead. A few local collectors bought the few paintings of his that were in Katharina's possession, and he slipped into obscurity. Then, in 1860, in a gallery in Vienna, a German museum director spotted what he was sure was a Vermeer piece, being wrongly attributed to another Dutch master. Research was done, and it was correctly attributed to Vermeer. This drew a lot of attention to Vermeer, so much so that 70 pieces of art were then being listed as his work. But this proved to be wrong, and to this day, there are only 34 known Vermeer paintings in existence. Okay, so now let's move into our discussion of the three things that we think you should know about Vermeer's Girl with the Pearl Earring, one of his uh, most known paintings, right, Lindsay? Mm-hmm, that's right. But the first thing that we think that is important to note is actually about the Dutch Golden Age. Mm -hmm. In 1588, the Dutch Republic was born, and it is only fitting that the Dutch Golden Age began at the same time. For 84 years, the Dutch dominated trade, science, and art, and the Dutch military was the most celebrated in the world. It all came crashing down in 1672, the year the Dutch call Rempjar, which means disaster year. The famous Dutch military was embroiled in expensive conflicts with France and Spain, and this pushed the Republic into economic decline. But let's focus now on the golden age, the good years. Like in many other parts of Europe, the Netherlands were in the midst of a Protestant reformation and the wealthier and skilled Protestants moved north out of the territory being run by the staunchly Catholic Habsburgs. They congregated in the port cities of Bruges, Ghent, and Antwerp. The proximity of the waterways and with money flowing, these areas quickly became thriving cities in Northern Europe. It is also said that there was a type of Protestant work ethic that led to the financial booming of these rapidly growing city centers. 
Based in Calvinism, this Protestant work ethic was founded on the core principles of thrift and education, which in turn led to low interest rates on loans, which helped further increase personal wealth and high literacy rates. Being the skilled explorers and sailors that they were, they also excelled at map making. Maps in the background hanging on walls are featured in a lot of paintings of the Dutch masters. They were proud of their travels and cartography skills. The Dutch also explored Asia and established the Dutch East India Company in 1602, which held the monopoly on trade with Asia at that time. This new company changed everything. Suddenly, the Dutch had access to exotic and unique goods, and this set them apart from other countries. What was even more important, though, was the rising of a new class of people, the merchant class, a type of upper middle class that made its money in this new merchant trading system. Unlike most of Europe, there was money to be made now by people who were not nobility in the monarchy or holding high offices within the church. Also interesting is that their landed nobility, the families that had previously held political and financial sway, lived away from these new rapidly growing city centers, which meant that most of their power was gone. Not a group to surrender, though, they started arranging marriages between their sons and daughters with the sons and daughters of this new merchant class. Both the nobility and the new merchant class championed university as a pathway to financial success and also united themselves in seeing the value in politics as a career following university. Both groups also sent their offspring to see Europe as the newest trend exploded, the Grand Tour. The other group that used to hold sway over everyone was the Catholic Church. The Protestant movement suppressed the church, pushing it underground while stripping it of its power. The Protestants weren't united, though. They battled amongst themselves, sometimes being more authoritarian than the Catholic Church that they had thought had previously too much control over their lives. So this was the world in which Vermeer and his contemporaries were painting in, and their new patrons were not the old money type, but rather the commissions that were coming in were from this new merchant class. This new group wanted paintings that showed their lives, their houses, and locations frequented by them. They also wanted the paintings that they commissioned to demonstrate their worldliness, and wealth as illustrated again by the maps on the walls and the jewels and exotic fabrics and fashion choices. Yes, I find all of this history so fascinating, especially when it comes to the merchant class now Mm -hmm. being the ones who are directing art when, like you said, for so long, it was either the church or the aristocracy, like the monarchies that were commissioning art. And Mm -hmm. now it's just like everyday people. Um, The one thing that I found interesting, and this kind of ties to the episode on Las Meninas that we did Mm -hmm. with Velasquez, how um, art we really, really see, especially in the Baroque period when so much was changing and happening politically and religiously, um, that the visual arts were such statements, right? Like they weren't just nice paintings. Often they had so much intellect in them and so much commentary about the culture and about the world at the time. And that when we pay attention to this, it's actually quite a study of history, which is astounding. 
Yeah. I love that. And that's something I think that both you and I just would have never looked into further had we not been producing yeah. these episodes, right? And so even though I'm just about to actually start to talk about the girl herself, the girl with the pearl earring, um, you and I both agreed that like we needed to know all of this other stuff before we can understand what's so special about this painting. Mm -hmm. And so we hope that you guys are as excited as we are to like learn all the background. There's a podcast I love called The History Chicks, and they always open every episode, which is always a biography on a famous woman woman or a woman's life with and now let's drop her into history and we can't right. copy that but I think that I love that they do that <laughs> because you really do before you know anything about anything you have to understand right the context what is going on at that time so yeah mm -hmm. there was so much in this in the Dutch golden age that was going on that really fueled all of the Dutch masters that came out during this time and yeah I'm really fascinated by the merchant class as well right and even like to the point where the trade industry and the fact that Dutch was now independent and could conduct their own trade, their own commerce, that even had an impact on, you know, the materials that they could use. And what you were saying about the the use of cartography mm -hmm. in the paintings themselves as a as a means for the Dutch masters to paint their understanding and pride in their seafaring ways and their exploring ways, even the the use of the paints. Um, demonstrates their international prowess. So for example, the yellow and the brown pigments in the piece could have been mined in Europe, but the red for her lips actually mm -hmm. came from um, cactus-dwelling insects that were found in Mexico and South America. And the dark blue in the backgrounds are believed to have come, you know, either from Asia or North America. And blue pigments at that time, uh, I was reading, were so valuable that they were worth more than gold in mm -hmm. that era. And so, yeah, scholars and analysts are surprised that Vermeer could use so much blue <laughs> in his painting. And even down to the whites of this girl's eyes, the white of the earring itself uh, would have been made from pigment um, it, from England, from the lead mines. And so it truly is fascinating to look at that piece of a girl um, and know that even uh, even the materials with which it was painted demonstrated the context of Dutch trade and internationality right there. That is absolutely fascinating. And I think that brings us perfectly into the second thing that we think everybody should know, which is now about the girl <laughs> and the girl mm -hmm. with the pearl earring, right? So yeah. yeah, it's taken us a bit to get here to be finally discussing the actual piece of art that we're learning about today. But that's because we really do believe that art is tied to history. So the first thing we need to discuss, though, is what a trony is. And trony is T-R-O-N-I-E. It's, it's Dutch for face. And it's a style of portrait um, painting in the Dutch tradition that isn't of a particular person, but rather it demonstrates the ideal type of a person, like a soldier, a musician, a young girl, an old man. These faces are overly expressive and not all part of a narrative scene. They were intended as studies in emotion, showing the details of a unique face or expression. Now, the identity of the girl is unknown. Many scholars have speculated that she is perhaps his eldest daughter, who might have been around 12 at the time. And this is possible. Family members were used as models all the time, especially because they were free and you had unlimited <laughs> access to them. Some of you may have seen the 2003 film Girl with a Pearl Earring that was based on the novel by Tracy Chevalier. She wrote a lot about this piece leading up to her book and then the film. 
I will share here the three qualities that Chevalier outlines that make the image so seductive, her word, not mine. The first thing she suggests is that it's simply beautiful. The colors, the black background, which we'll find out about later, the light and shade, her glowing skin. The second thing is that the girl looks familiar. We feel like we all know her, but the truth is we don't even actually know her hair color or the actual color of her eyes. Mm. And thirdly, that it's a mystery. Like the Mona Lisa, we try to figure out what she is thinking. Unlike the Mona Lisa, we have no idea who she was. Chevalier wrote, to me, girl with the pearl earring is neither a universal trony nor a portrait of someone specific. It is a portrait of a relationship. Chevalier concludes her piece with this. Beauty, familiarity, mystery. These are the qualities of girl with a pearl earring that make it an iconic masterpiece. The painting is like a song that ends on the second to last chord. We are drawn to look at it again in the hope that this time the last chord will be played. The painting will resolve itself. The mystery will dissipate and we can leave the girl alone at last. This comparison to another great piece of art has gained the girl with the pearl earring, the nickname, the Mona Lisa of the North. Besides the similarities between the two pieces, both women are everywhere. You can find girl with pearl earring on everything from Kleenex boxes to umbrellas. Very little is known about girl. It was painted in 1665 or 66, and it was in his patron's collection, we don't know who the patron was, until it was sold by the son-in-law, and then it was lost until it was found 200 years later, and was purchased by two guilders for a little less than a dollar. They found out that it was a Vermeer when it had been cleaned. Upon the collector's death, girl was donated to the Hague, the Moritz House, in 1902, where it hangs today. It is priceless, but try to imagine its value. The last Vermeer sold for $42 million, and this one is, quote, nowhere near as good as Girl. Perhaps our painting is one of two tronies painted in the, quote, Turkish fashion. It might be the painting originally cataloged as Portrait and Antique Costume Uncommonly Artistic. Then it was known as Girl with a Turban and Head of a Young Girl and The Pearl, which was not referring only to the actual pearl, but to her luminescent skin. By 1995, Girl with a Pearl Earring was considered most appropriate. If it is one of a set of two paintings in the, quote, Turkish fashion, then perhaps her companion is the similar painting by Vermeer called Study of a Young Woman, which is currently housed at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. This painting is nowhere near as good as Girl with a Pearl Earring, though. She wears a similar turban, and she is also against a dark background with her head turned to face the viewer, but her face is flat without dimension, and she's definitely not as captivating. Both images feature young women with pearls. It's interesting to note that 21 of Vermeer's paintings feature women with pearls. We know that the word Baroque itself means irregularly shaped, and this description was used to describe pearls. A Baroque pearl is not a perfect sphere. It is large, curvy, and somewhat misshapen. The pearl, and I wrote that in quotes, and girl is huge and bulbous, so large, in fact, that many have suggested that there is no way that it was a real pearl. In 2014, Dutch astrophysicist Vincent Ick raised these very doubts, suggesting that it was polished tin, and others have suggested perhaps painted glass. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that this is most likely what we're calling a trony mm-hmm. right now is so interesting. And um, I was reading that tronies they really allowed an artist to show off their skills, mm-hmm. as it were, by giving them an opportunity to paint, you know, certain garments, certain characteristics as they saw fit creatively. 
uh, versus a patroned portrait, which I guess could end badly if the artist (laughs) took so many liberties. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, and although they're beautiful to look at, at the time of Vermeer, tronies were not uh, appreciated as much as they are today. And I was reading that it's because his contemporaries would have thought that they lacked the intellectual and moral complexities that usually accompany a portrait. And I took that to just mean, you know, if you're trying to paint someone's likeness, like a real person's likeness, you really have Mm -hmm. to, like I said, you have to do justice to them. Whereas I suppose they would consider a trony kind of like what we were talking about with the preludes Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the cello suites, like um, a disciplined technique practice. But yeah, one of the amazing things that I love about this painting is that it's different from the regular paintings of women from the 17th century, right? Mm. Um, I think often a a painting of a woman often focused on them doing something, Mm -hmm. like they're reading or they're writing or they're playing instruments or they're pouring milk into a bowl or something (laughs) like that, right? Um, And while they do invite intimacy, like a, a glimpse into their lives, often it is painted while still retaining their distance, Mm-hmm. Uh, but this painting, the girl, um, she is so memorable because it's such a close up of a woman and she's doing nothing except looking right back at you. Right. And, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's startling. It kind of like shakes you. So I think it, it's just such an interesting study of the time and the art. I really loved learning about tronies. It's something I'd never heard Mm -hmm. of before. And when you do, when you contrast that back even to like, if you look at the paintings of the monarchy in England, um, you know, a hundred years before when you look at Henry VIII or Queen Elizabeth I, um, and we know Henry VIII did not look as good (laughs) in those later years of his life as he does in some of those essentially propaganda paintings. And the same Mm -hmm. thing could be said for Queen Elizabeth I. The the artist wouldn't dare, you know, show the wounds she had on her face, the scars from smallpox and the open source from the lead makeup um and so that i could see now where the artists would want this this opportunity to really stretch their skills like they're saying which they couldn't have done in those paint mm-hmm. pieces and i'd never thought about that before until learning about tronies it is fascinating if they want to paint an old lady and there are some of old ladies that i by vermeer and by some of the other dutch masters that i'm just absolutely in love with because you see their actual age where it's almost like now with filters and photoshopping versus Mm -hmm. an unfiltered picture right and so I love the study of this of real people's real faces even the only little image we have of Vermeer himself that very small where he's poking out and he's smiling (laughs) I don't know if you've ever seen it (laughs) no it's the only bit of a self-portrait we have it makes me laugh every time because he's genuinely (laughs) smiling and you see his teeth and as we know you rarely saw people's teeth in any of these paintings and he's like he's almost going hey bud like as he's popping around a corner (laughs) you have to see it and you can see that he had that fun with himself and his real right. face um, in that tiny self-portrait in the background of one of his other paintings. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's awesome. I'm going to go look that up right after we it's record. so cute. It makes me I literally laugh every time I see him. And I'm always like, hi, hi, <laughs> hi Vermeer. How you doing, Jan? So yeah. cute. Okay, so the third thing that we think you should know about this piece involves technology, more specifically the intersection of old and new technology. It has been suggested that Vermeer, like many of his contemporaries, used a new piece of technology at the time when he painted Girl with a Pearl Earring. 
The Camera Obscura was already over 100 years old by this time, but throughout the 16th century, it was mostly used to study the sun by astronomers. Painters did start using it in the 17th century, and while there isn't any actual proof that Vermeer did use a camera to help him paint, many scholars suggest that Vermeer's expert use of perspective could only have been achieved had he been tracing the image that the camera would have captured. So Michelle and I laughed about how complicated this whole camera obscura thing is, <laughs> admitting that the science went right over our heads. So I can't get into it too much. Um, but essentially, this type of, quote, camera was like a dark box with a pinhole that would let in the light. This pinhole was then replaced with a piece of convex glass by Vermeer's time, which would flip an image and display it very darkly and rudimentary on a surface. And if a piece of oiled paper was there, the artist could trace the image that was being projected. In this way, artists like Vermeer could accurately depict scale and perspective, which would explain how many of Vermeer's works look 3D. Again, this isn't known if he did in fact use this type of camera, but several cameras owned by artists from the same period have survived, and we know that they did use them. Yes, uh, the very little bit that I understood about the camera obscura <laughs> <laughs> did actually uh, have to do with my fascination with the 3D quality of Vermeer's mm. paintings. I was really looking into... Um, how some uh, analysts were saying that the fact that there are always checkered floors, mm. <laughs> there seem to be a lot of checkered floors in Vermeer's paintings. Mm -hmm. um, he does that on purpose because it's easy to create that depth uh, with the receding sight lines of mm -hmm. a checkered floor, right? And then even using like so old, old uh, methods to create paintings as even looking into the light how he's such a master of light and how yes uh, part of that could have come from using a camera obscura um, but even the windows during Vermeer's time would have acted as diffusers mm -hmm. because they're not like our glass and they would have been you know fraught with bubbles air bubbles and imperfections that would have made them more translucent mm -hmm. and so uh you start to see all these very like natural and at the same time science-based uh, influences in Vermeer's art. And you realize he is a man that probably had interests and uh, a curiosity about so many things going on around him from the burgeoning science to trade to politics. Like it's, he was truly a worldly man. I think that is the thing I'm going to take away from this episode is just Vermeer himself, the piece of paint, like the piece of art itself, those are wonderful things, but yeah, it was more so the influence of that society, right? Like we were saying right mm -hmm. at the very beginning that I'm just so blown away by how these, these men took all of the new stuff, right? All of the yeah. information. They just were like exploding with information at that time. And they, mm -hmm. and you can see it all in their art. And I just, I think that that's so fascinating. And, and within myself, I struggle with the massive influx of information we receive right now in 2021. And some mm -hmm. of it, I'm like, no, I like the old ways, but I can see like these men, they would have taken all of these new branches of science and math, right? And calculating mm -hmm. perspective and technology, and they used it to create this beautiful art. And that just reminds me that we can do the same, that we can use those things as a tool to continue to create beautiful art in our culture. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to look at current technology and its efforts to restore and preserve this great piece of art. 
It was in a very sorry state when it was first acquired by Moritz House in 1903. They discovered that in areas that had been overcleaned, attempts had been made to hide that overcleaning with more paint, and so that all had to be removed. A 1994 restoration enhanced the girl's gaze and revealed a green overtone in the black background. They had found that a black glaze had darkened the green in the background. They also found that a small white spot on the lower part of the pearl was not more of a reflection painted by the artist, but rather a small piece of paint, a tiny fleck that had fallen onto the pearl during a previous restoration, and it actually looked like part of the pearl. It was removed, and the pearl regained its softness. This 1994 restoration, just like another big effort that happened in February and March of 2018, was done in view of the public. I love this aspect of modern technology. A glass room was constructed both times, and the restoration team and scientists worked inside this room while being observed by museum visitors who could watch them at work. To me, this is almost like modern art, a performance piece, seeing art within art. This examination revealed three important things. That greenish background that was discovered in 1994 was revealed in 2018 to be a green curtain. Next, this 2018 examination revealed her delicate eyelashes. The lack of eyelashes up until now had contributed to the Troni theory, but this revealed that he was indeed painting a real woman. It was also discovered that the pearl is just an illusion. There's no visible hook hanging from the girl's ear. It's just floating there in space. So while she is still unknown, she certainly isn't a stranger to us. I agree with Chevalier. It is her very familiarity that is so captivating. The softness of her gaze. She's comfortable with the person she's looking at. The gently parted lips. She's about to say something. Whether Vermeer used a camera obscura or not, he did seem to capture something elusive, like a good photographer. A split second of time, freezing forever the moment a young woman turned around and was about to speak. And it's the very fact that we might never know who she was or what she was about to say that keeps us hooked on the girl with a pearl earring. And so now it's your turn. Here is your homework. If you haven't already, please find a copy of Vermeer's Girl with a Pearl Earring to study and enjoy. Next, tell us what you think on our Patreon page or the Friday Finishing School Facebook group, where we would love to continue the discussion with you. And finally, be sure to share this piece and your newfound appreciation for it in your little corner of the world. That concludes today's lesson here at the Modern Ladies Friday Finishing School. We want to thank you so much for supporting us and for being our patrons on Patreon. We'll see you again soon. Class dismissed. Class dismissed.